Hey there, and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm here, as always, with my very good friend, Will. We are both ministry associates with Ministry to State. Um, we have so many fun things to talk about uh, today. Um, we're going to be getting into the breaking news coming out of the uh, Redskins organization, uh, our own hometown football team. It's a big uh, week for the Redskins. It is. Not, not in all good ways. No, and sadly, in some very, very bad ways. Yes, definitely. Uh, so we're going to get into that. Um, and then uh, we're very excited to talk about a new movie that Will and I just watched um, called Greyhound on Apple TV. Both huge fans of the film and, and had some thoughts that we wanted to, to share with that. But first, we wanted to talk about uh, recent events in Turkey uh, with the Hagia Sophia. We're not going to lie, we were just looking up how to pronounce it about five minutes ago. Totally true. Uh, both of us have heard it pronounced Hagia Sophia, looked up multiple pronunciations on YouTube. We got Hagia Sophia and Hagia Sophia. So even the great linguists of the world are not in agreement on the pronunciation of this sacred, holy place. So we ask for your forgiveness and grace to us. Yes, as We perhaps please. go between as we seek to please all parties of the pronunciation. Yeah, we might switch it up. Who knows? Who knows? Um, but Will, you, you were looking at these events and you had an interesting point about how it might um, relate to Christians sort of beyond the implications of historical Christian church turning into a mosque. But before we get into that, sort of run us through what's going on for those of us who aren't fully aware. So the news came out very recently. There's, there's a couple articles. Um, one of them was uh, July 12th. And it stated that uh, the Hagia Sophia, which has been a museum since the 1930s, uh, and prior to that was a mosque, but was originally at an Orthodox church. So it has gone through exchanging hands between Christians to Muslims to a historic site that had housed medieval artifacts, definitely some very famous architecture, but it was released last Friday or news came out last Friday that it was going to be reverted back to a mosque. And this news has led to some uh, heartbreak from a lot of people. Uh, Orthodox Christians are upset about this. Uh, the Vatican came out with a comment on this saying that they were not really pleased with this decision because they are concerned about what is going to be the long-term viability, what's going to be the long-term status of these artifacts that have been protected as this being a world history site. So now that it's gone back to being a Muslim um, place of worship, there is still going to be, it is still going to allow to be entered by non-Muslims. They're not going to be restricted from it, but its meaning is definitely changing. And we get into this really complicated world over in the Middle East when we consider the ways that you have this clash of politics and religion exchanging hands. And you'd mentioned, what did I think about this that was relevant to us today? Well, Erdogan is not really like this super fastidious uh, Muslim leader, as in he's, he's not leading like the Ayatollah. Right. He is not a looking for a Muslim nation per se. He is some secular tendencies in his forms of government. And he even has alliances with like Venezuela, you know, so that's not really, he's not just going buddy, buddy with other Muslim leaders in the region. Uh, so part of me wonders, and part of it could be, is this a, like a red herring being thrown up to distract from, for example, the financial crisis that's going on in, uh, in, in Turkey at the moment, 
where there are some very real existential crises that are going on for people. And by Erdogan, who originally back in 2005 was not actually a fan of reverting it from a world religious site, historical site, to a mosque. Now he has changed his views, and, and there's a lot that could, we could get into and talk about why he did that and what was the reason for his change of thought. But what I thought was relevant for us in America today is we talked a while ago about Trump walking to the Episcopal Church and holding up the Bible as a sign, um, you know, that America is a Christian nation, as he would say, or something like that. And are there times where political leaders will use religious symbols in order to distract believers of that religion from very real and concerning economic, social issues surrounding them? And do we as Christians need to be aware and discerning enough to say, hey, actually, that's whatever, you know, glad that you read the Bible, Trump, hopefully, but that's actually not what really needs to be worked on right now. Don't try to distract us and throw up a smoke screen. Right. Yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, you can kind of see in politics at sort of all levels. And it doesn't happen just in other places. It happens in America, sort of like what you brought up with, with Trump and, and the Bible. I know like there's a lot of like cynicism that will look at, you know, events that happened in, in previous administrations uh, where presidents pursued certain goals or programs in order to distract people from uh, much uh, more damaging issues. You know, the sort of the, I think there's a really cynical take on uh, a lot of the stuff that the, the Clinton administration did overseas with regards to military policy and, and foreign affairs that was meant to, you know, a, a cynical reading would say a lot of that was done to distract people from, you know, the issues that were going on with Bill Clinton's personal life. Um, but I've also noticed this happening in even really local election levels. So like for an example, I always like to remind people is like, uh, I remember one of the first years that I lived in Northern Virginia, uh, the city that I was living in had a ballot measure uh, that would have basically meant that residents could not convert any part of their property into short-term rental properties, basically trying to uh, ban Airbnb from uh, the local neighborhoods, which was a huge measure on the ballot that really affected people's livelihoods. Um, and I'm not trying to take a stance on either way, like from the, from the pro Airbnb side, right? Like this was an opportunity for a lot of families to make some cash um, that would have helped them or would have supported them in a very affluent, um, expensive community. And at the same time, you can see why people on the air, you know, on the other side of that argument, right? We say no, because having Airbnbs and short-term rentals actually devalues the property that it could be really bad for me because I, I have, I have to sell this house when I retire. That's my nest egg, right? Um, so you kind of see how a ballot measure really impacts the lives of, of people in real time. Well, if you were to look at the candidates that were running for city council, the only thing that people were promising was, hey, we're going to either change the name of the local high school away from Robert, and, Robert E. Lee uh, and George Washington because they were slave owners, or it was, we are going to fight to defend the names on the local high school. You know, something that doesn't really, at the end of the day, affect people the same way. So I guess, you know, so the question is like, what, what is actually going on here, right? So, but I think looking into what the government is like in Turkey, what's, what's going on on the ground, you know, you mentioned sort of the economic crisis, but like, who is leading Turkey? Like, what's the leadership like there? that might give us some insight. It's like, what's, what's actually going on. And if you look at it, like 
I mean, Turkey's basically run by a, a, an authoritarian, right? Yeah, I mean, he's been lumped in as one of the strongmen of the Middle East, and in that you have people who love to cite Erdogan, and then they'll love to also put Donald Trump in there and put the he's a populist um, and his rise. So yeah, he, he is not necessarily in any way a friend of democracy. I do think it's interesting that uh, after he made his decision, he pointed out that when the Hagia Sophia was first turned into a mosque, that there was a sultan who said that whoever changes the foundation certificate shall suffer the curse of God. And so in 1930, basically, whenever it was turned into a world religious site, it was there was a curse. And so after the decision was made, Erdogan says the decision today, made today allowed us to rid our country from this curse. Um, so definitely adopting some very strong language for what it means to offer this change. Mike Pompeo has chimed in saying he's very concerned and, and, and dismayed by it because it as a site for both Christians and Muslims to gather in and both worship there allowed it a bridge to be made to connect each other. Uh, to connect with each other, and that has been taken away. So uh, it'll be interesting, I think, to see how it plays out, but I think it did serve as a warning sign for me of, hey, like, um, what are times, again, where people will use religion as a means to distract, to to unify for actual real purposes, it yeah. seems, beyond the immediately religious. Yeah, it's definitely something we'll have to keep a, an eye on as we look at different policies and, and announcements coming out of both campaigns. Cause you know, it's hard to believe that in this time, right. We're dealing with COVID. We've had a massive unrest and protests in American cities. Like we're just going to go to the polls and vote this year. It's going to be interesting to see uh, in a, with all that sort of in the background, what different policies, certain campaigns will use as sort of ways to distract us. So um, awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back to talk about the Washington Redskins. Hey, y'all. It's Robert from The Will and Rob Show. Thank you so much for tuning in each week to hear our conversations about faith and culture. This show could not happen without you or without Ministry to State. If you like what you hear, make sure to check out the rest of Ministry to State's content, like our weekly devotionals and regular Bible studies. Just visit www.ministrytostate.org and click Get Connected. Okay, back to the show. Hello and welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. I'm excited to hear Robert's take on, or takes, I should say, plural. There's many. There are many, many, many mucho takes. Um, on some current events that he's been thinking about. And I think starting with using the Washington Redskins and the news that's broken from them, both the Washington Post article that has stirred up a lot of conversation, pretty, pretty upsetting news coming out of there, and the name change as well, right. and what that might indicate, and then the idea of woke capitalism. Well, I mean, well, let's just say it, like the Washington Redskins have been in the news now for what, like a full month, essentially. Okay. Like almost, actually, probably longer than that. Like, you know, it's been a while. Is this all revolving around the Dan Snyder name change? Is that yeah, like so that's kind of the first thing when I started paying attention to it was that the Redskins had been getting a lot of pushback, especially after um, new conversations about race in America. Uh, they were starting to get, you know, obviously people have been calling for the, the team to be changed for a long time, uh, but it kind of got a new life uh, with the um, events this summer. Dan Snyder has a history of being a very controversial owner, even co more controversial than our beloved Dallas Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones. There is no way that you should, 
allow anyone the title of being more controversial. <laughs> but, Dan, but Dan Snyder is, is up there. And what's really crazy is that, you know, the idea of the Redskins changing their name might be like the biggest news in the NFL in any sort of normal summer. But then uh, as of this week, we got new reporting coming out of that front office, which has just been insane. Although I will say that it was sort of an interesting development that the, the sort of the Washington sports media had been floating some pretty big claims or at least sort of building it up um, to be something, you know, pretty extraordinary. It's not that the, the reporting that came out of it wasn't extraordinary, but like what we did here does seem to be a little bit on the less side. I think most people were surprised that it wasn't bigger news. And yeah. I think the question we wonder is where's the rest of the story? Right. What did legal tell them you can't run? Yes, yes. I think in most of these, and I, I would classify it as this, as sort of a hashtag me too story. Okay. It does seem that what you get initially is not usually the full story. Usually you've got to wait a couple months um, as more things come out, as depositions happen, as new victims come forward. You sort of get a more full picture as, as events go on. So I'm sure we're going to hear more about it um, in respect to that. When I was starting to listen to all of it, I, I was focusing mostly on what was going on with the name change because uh, the way that it was sort of forced, I thought was an interesting development and what a, a larger movement of, of, that I've sort of been tracking for a while called woke capitalism. Um, and so what is woke capitalism? So woke capitalism is, is a phenomena within our, our economic system today where major brands who are protected uh, essentially from any sort of boycott activity by a identity group out in America. It has that comfort to be able to make really quote unquote controversial uh, social justice or public statements about uh, social issues. Um, so that, you know, that comes out in things uh, like I remember Nike uh, with events around Colin Kaepernick signed him on as basically a sponsorship deal, even though he wasn't playing football and ran all these ads promoting a lot of the cause of the causes of, of Colin Kaepernick. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's, it manifests itself differently in different companies. Like sometimes it makes total sense, right? Like, so like Patagonia being pro environmentalism, that just, that's just makes sense to, to me. Um, and it, it also is a lot more authentic because it's something that Patagonia has been, uh, and they live by it. They are yeah. faithful to it. I mean, you send your jacket back to them and they'll, help patch it. They are all about, yes. we don't want you to throw this away. Right. And they were founded that way. Right. Um, Whole Foods is another good example of this. Uh, the CEO of Whole Foods is a guy named John Mackey, um, who wrote a really great book uh, a couple years back called Conscious Capitalism. And, and he said like, hey, look, my business model isn't the most efficient way to, do, to run grocery stores, but like, these are the things I'm committed to. Like I'm committed to getting people healthier foods. I'm committed to giving employees of my store a better livelihood. And so he ran his organization that way. Um, so that, that sort of practicing what you preach, if you will. But woke capitalism tends to not practice what it preaches. And when you look at the Redskins case, you see this perfectly. So really there were two companies that came out and really started to force the Redskins hands. Uh, the first was FedEx who actually sponsors their stadium. And so basically saying, hey, we don't want you to plan our stadium if you, if you don't change your name. Um, the second was Nike, who makes the jerseys for the Redskins. And so saying, hey, we're not going to provide you your jerseys if you don't change your name. 
what was really interesting about Nike coming out and saying that along with all of their other statements on, on certain issues is some reporting that was coming out of actually a, a group out of Australia and then uh, a lot of uh, United States uh, news media started picking up on it too, but looking at the supply chains of Nike, especially in China, and how much it relies on as what's essentially slave labor by the persecuted Uyghur community, uh, which is a small Muslim community in mainland China. That so Nike is using Uyghurs to. So we know for we know based on the reporting that Nike supply chains do include factories that this group from Australia does believe is being staffed by mostly slave labor. Wow. Whether it's the Uyghurs or not, I think is not, we're not quite able to be determined. However, or you can start inferring things based on, did you see the video, the, the drone video footage that came out? I saw a part of it, but it was old. That's the other thing is like, this came out in 2017 or something and no one really did anything, but about the blindfolded Uyghurs yeah. being put on. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And now people are paying attention, maybe paying attention. Right. I hope they are, but, this is, yeah, I think the first thing that we have to say when we when I looked at that footage was like, whoever got that footage, like that person's a hero. Like let's not let's not kid ourselves. Like that to risk yourself um, to put to get that on camera, I think is a big deal. I think also it's it's quite shameful uh, to see a lot of organizations, especially in America, who have been on the forefront of a lot of good social justice issues, and basically afraid to speak into what's going on in mainland China, either afraid to be, to sound xenophobic, um, or uh, to what's, you know, a much more cynical take, but probably somewhat true, right, of being, they're afraid of losing their foothold in the Chinese market, which obviously offers a ton of um, opportunity and growth for organizations. The NBA is a perfect example. Great example. The Waj case that happened last week with, um, Senator Hawley. Yeah. And, you know, what was interesting is one of the, one of the promotions that's going on with the NBA right now, sort of getting people back into uh, the idea of sports and getting interested in it uh, was, you know, they gave fans an opportunity to basically put their own social justice message on the back of homemade jerseys, because this is going on what the NBA is going to do during this, this playoff uh, season is they're actually going to allow players to put, uh, certain hashtags and, and statements on the back of their jerseys, so they allow fans to do it. But the uh, catch, the catch was that you could not put like Uyghur Lives Matter or Free Uyghurs or anything like that. They're curated. Yeah, yeah. It was a it was a pre-chosen, pre-selected group of phrases that could be used. Which, and I, this is something else that the NBA needs to really step up to. And this is again, you get. I think this is kind of what you're saying about. Well, capital is like, well, hey, forgive me if I don't take you seriously when the mouth is kept shut on that issue. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that what's so what's so frustrating about woke capitalism, right, is like it just so clearly comes out in the end that a lot of these brands, what they care about is selling products. And one point that Tim Carney makes in one of in his book called Alienated America, which is a great book that I would recommend anyone of any political persuasion to read, sort of understand what's going on on the ground level in America right now. And one of the points that he makes is that we have so lowered the bar for political engagement in this country and that the, that the brands have, have realized that. And so what Nike is trying to do is they're trying to make, not just buying Nike shoes to be a, hey, I'm buying the best product on the market. They want you to buy Nike shoes because buying Nike shoes is a statement about what you believe in. 
right? Which is a much actually stronger force. That's that's the point. That's the goal of woke capitalism. And anyone that's that's uh, seriously thinking about their convictions, the issues that they care about, the issues that matter to them, I think you need to look at these things with with clear eye and look and say, what is this person trying to sell me? What, what is their what is their agenda? What's what's going on here? And I think that they would find that there's actually much more productive ways to get involved in these righteous causes other than purchasing tennis shoes. Well, so I think one part of this that has been brought up and discussed is with cancel culture um, has been the comparison that evangelicals invented cancel culture. And I'm not totally sure what people mean by that, but I think what they mean is, hey, churches decide Disney does gay day or they have gay pride and we're not going to go to Disney World as a result of that we're, we're not going to send our money there. So I think, and now we have someone says something that we believe is offensive. Therefore, they're not invited on college campuses. You can't buy their books, blah, 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 all this stuff. And they've basically said, hey, you do it too. Evangelicals do it too. The more woke progressives do it as well. But it's just the same thing based on whatever cause you want. I think they are different in that one is saying, I'm not going to spend my money here. The other one is saying, no one can spend their money there. Right. Yes. You're forbidden to do that. So. Uh, what is the connection, I think, between like woke capitalism and Goya beans? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Another internet trend we're going to bring in here. Um, I wish I could have a, I wish I had a photo of you doing the Ivanka Trump with the Goya beans. Oh, we, my we gosh. We need to do something like that with you. Um, the flip side, right, is I am going to only purchase this thing because like it triggers the other side. Right. It's, it's not even like a, I believe in this thing. That's why I'm going to spend my money there. It's like, I want to do it so I get a reaction out of people, which is, I think, one of the more strange elements of our system. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Goya beans are selling out right now. They are, yes. And yes. so Babylon B had this hilarious article where other CEOs are lining up to say, I'm a Trump supporter, make America great again, in hopes that right. people will just start spending their money. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in... But like at the end of the day, it's like, what is, what is it that, that Goya, what, what's their end goal? Like, what, what do they want? Their end goal is they want to sell as much stuff as possible to us. And I think that we just, we need to be mindful of that kind of stuff. We need to engage with things in the market from a very prudential uh, viewpoint. And, and the reality is that if you're going to treat every single one of your economic purchases as a value statement, you're going to be overwhelmed. You know, in some ways, I feel like Mako is turning into our patron saint here. Yes, yes. Because it goes back to that conversation with him once again with what is the culture care concept, the societal care, what is the generative way, what is the most beneficial way that a Christian can step into this particular thing. You know, in some ways, it might mean choosing not to spend my dollar there. That. I don't want to. Other times it might mean, hey, I would like to write a letter to someone. Sometimes it might mean, actually, I'm going to go to this thing. Yeah. Uh, that's a place where I can be. And um, it takes a lot more work and we have to be much more patient with it. And I say that I'm smiling as I say that because I am not always a patient person. Probably more often than not, I'm not a patient person. That sentence even took too long to say. I don't have patience to finish a sentence. Um, but the requirement of a thoughtful engagement is needed. Yeah. I mean, like, think about it. If you're a conservative Christian who is going to boycott um, a brand because of their statement on some issue that you disagree, by retreating and not actually engaging, like, you just make it easier for that brand to continue to just blow you off. Because they go, okay, now we don't have to worry about them anymore. 
And so I think if, if, if you're a Christian, you want to see um, companies and, and an economic system that, you know, values your opinions and your, your beliefs, like you've got to, you've got to engage. And so, Will, you're exactly right. Like sometimes that means like, hey, Disney, we love you 360, you know, 364 days of the year. But like this day, we just can't, you know, we're going, we're not going to watch Disney Plus. We're not going to go to Disney World, you know, these kind of things. Um, but I think at the same time, you can, you could create a strategy that also says, Hey, Disney, we, we love your content. Like we love uh, letting our kids watch the old Disney classics, getting a group together that says, Hey, what about, a, you know, what about finding uh, animators, Christian animators, finding Christian storytellers and like trying to get them into positions where they can uh, shed light into Disney. Uh, I think would be a, a better strategy um, and something that Christians can think about. So, all right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and after that, we will return to discuss one of our favorite movies of the year so far, Greyhound. Fan of The Will and Rob Show? Make sure to check out Ministry to State's other podcast, Faithful Presence. Join host, Reverend Michael Langer, as he explores the paradox and importance of Christians living as the elect and as exiles in our world as well as practical and theological discussions of faith in the workplace, the political arena, and the local culture. Just search for Faithful Presence wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to click subscribe. Now, back to The Will and Rob Show. All right, welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. Uh, we are very excited to spend the last uh, segment here uh, discussing a movie that Will and I both watched uh, this last week on Apple TV called Greyhound. Uh, it is the new Tom Hanks movie uh, about World War II, Battle of the Atlantic. It follows the battleship Greyhound as they uh, escort a group of ships with supplies and soldiers to the uh, European front. Um, and it is quite an extraordinary film. Um, Will, what was your sort of initial reaction to the film? Well, I gotta say this. While this is the last segment of the show, this is our first arts foray. We are, it is. This is our first film review that we've given. So this is breaking in its own way. Yeah, and this is definitely something we want to do more in the future. For sure. Yeah, we just, uh, I don't know if you'll notice, but the theaters have been closed. So oh, that's right. going to the cinema. Has Actually, been... a reason why Greyhound got released on Apple TV. This was, we should have been able to watch this on a massive screen, which would have been probably been better. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. No doubt. But instead, we watched it on our phones, most likely on Apple TV. Uh, but yeah, so Will, what, what did you think about when you, when you got in with them? Well, you had told me that it, you, you texted me, said, do you have Apple TV? And I was like, well, why are you asking about my private life and trying to invade my space? <laughs> no, you'd asked me if I had Apple TV. And then you told me that I, I said, I did. And he's like, well, check out Greyhound. It's just been released. So that night when I was at home, I, I watched it, uh, started around 930. And I'd been wanting to watch it because I saw the trailer for it and I, I thought Tom Hanks is just a phenomenal actor and I loved it. I thought it was absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's, it's a great movie. I, there are a couple of really fun things leading up to it where I saw like the Navy and the Army were going back and forth on Twitter about the film because like the Navy was making fun of the Army being like, hey, look, Tom Hanks just like switched sides, like showing his, his characters, Captain Miller from Saving Private Ryan and showing them in the movie and Greyhound. I thought that was funny. But yeah, just a just a tremendous movie. So I, I think the first thing is that that movie is just engrossing. I mean, once he gets on the destroyer, it is nonstop. 
action. It is intense. It is dramatic. It's not the long shot that is taken in a movie like 1917. However, uh, it doesn't let up once it gets going. No, I think there's, it's like the first 15 minutes is sort of setting up backdrop. Like here's who he is. It's stateside. He's got this love interest. He's clearly, you know, this is his first commission. He's very excited, blah, blah. And then basically from there, it starts with him like waking up the first day on the ship. And then it's basically nonstop what's going on in that time. And it's very intense and there's, you know, alarms going off and, He's shouting orders. I thought one of the most interesting parts of the movie was that there's all these really like detailed orders going on. And it really does feel like you're in the bridge of the ship. Like it it felt very like this is, we're going to take you and we're going to put you in the context of what's going on. And we're not going to explain things to you. Like you're just going to have to kind of pay attention. And I admit there were several, I mean, I think almost all the commands that he gave, I was like, I have no idea what that means, but it sounds very important. Right. And they better get it right. Yes, yeah. This and, time. and what's what's kind of blew me away was just like the the organizational like system and structure of a navy battleship is just incredible. And it it really is sort of very American, I think, in a sense. Like you've got sort of like the executive, like the, the very sort of like statesman, elderly statesman presence, but then like around him, you have just a lot of role players, people who know, understand what they're there to do, they have a job, they have a duty, they do it well. And I thought that was interesting. And you could kind of get that in the movie just by the fact, like, like the way they decided to cast it and film it. Because, I mean, it's Tom Hanks. And did you know another actor in the film? No. The guy who played, like, sort of, like, the second in command, I have, like, seen him in other movies. I had no idea who, what the actor's name was. Like, it really did feel like these are, like, this is a ship. Like, you've got the sort of the famous captain, and then it's just a bunch of dudes doing their job. And so because it was such a fun movie, uh, it was engrossing, it was a war movie, um, it was in contrast to many other war movies that I feel like have come out recently, it was not overly cynical. It wasn't cynical at all, actually. And so it was nice. It wasn't even necessarily uplifting. It was affirming and encouraging, but it was set apart in so many ways from, I think, other more, quote-unquote, realistic war movies that are just, uh, just cynical, and they're somewhat... Yeah, war movies definitely fall into basically two camps. And I think we've gotten a lot of the Apocalypse Now camp for a while, which is that, you know. War is hell. War is hell. Wars are started by politicians seeking self-promotion. They don't actually care about the the soldiers on the ground. And basically nothing is ever won or accomplished in these wars. And so one of the, one of the best examples of this recent, uh, a more recent film, which is a perfect example of this, is Jarhead. I don't know if you ever saw that. No, I didn't. But that's like the quintessential, like, war's pointless and absurd and stupid and, you know, nothing matters. Films like 1917 and Greyhound are really memorials to the people who, who gave their lives to these causes. And I think that's what makes them so much more inspiring. I mean, like, one thing we should say about Greyhound 2 is that it had very strong Christian motifs. Throughout. Very strong. I mean, Captain Krauss doesn't get out of bed and he doesn't go to bed before reading Luther's small book of, cate- of catechism. I mean, it's, it is just so upfront and he's quoting scripture left and right. It's, it's kind of jarring in sort of 2020 Hollywood. Without being uh, cliche, cheesy, anything like that. No. So I think in order to not give it away because we could talk about all the details, but want to point out what we were like, what were some of the elements you wrote a piece and sent it to me really loved. I loved getting your thoughts uh, that you put to paper 
What are, what are some of the reasons that you love the movie? What are some of the elements that came out that really stick with you? Well, I, I tweeted that it's the greatest leadership movie I've seen ever, I think. Hmm. And, and I mean that in a sense because it is a perfect celebration of the right leaders for the right times, which is something that just doesn't happen very often, right? Like we often don't get the right people for the right time. And when we do, we, we sort of awe at, at it, right? And we, we actually venerate them with statues and plaques. So like, Lincoln and Churchill. These were, these were men, the right men at the right times, right? And Greyhound is like that. Tom Hanks's character is the exact type of leader that they need in that situation, which is a shepherd. He's not a warrior. He's a shepherd. That theme is, it, it's there, right? Like he is um, a very committed Christian. He's got a, he's got a picture of uh, Jesus, I believe actually as a shepherd, on his mirror, they're being chased by the gray wolf, which is a German U-boat that is, that is following them and tailing them the whole time. Um, I think another interesting part of the movie that, that really emphasizes this is that there's a moment in the film where uh, there's someone on the ship spots some survivors from a, from a ship that had been destroyed uh, a little ways off. And at the same time, they're getting flares from another ship at the back of the convoy saying, hey, we're, we're under attack. And it kind of comes to this crossroads, this, this decision point for this leader. And the leader decides, no, we're going to go, we're going to save these, these people, and then we'll get to the, the action. And it's really an example of, we will go after the one before the 99. And I, I think it, it, that sort of understanding of valuing life and valuing those that you have been tasked with caring for is a quality of leadership we haven't really celebrated in a long time. We tend to focus on the Captain Millers, right? Tom Hanks' other character in Saving Private Ryan, who was like, the whole film was weighing, you know, what's, what's a life worth compared to the objectives of the war? And they're sort of like going back and forth. And then in the end, Tom Hanks basically is like, I will give my life and the lives of my men for this bridge because it means one step closer to the end of the war. I mean, Greyhound's kind of different in that sense. That's not really the vibe that you get. One of the things so you mentioned the the on his mirror he has a card of jesus and the passages hebrews 13 8 and it says uh jesus christ the same yesterday today and forever and i i think the one of the phrases that i came away with at the end of the movie was that he exemplified a tenacious faithfulness Mm. that he was just faithful to his calling above and beyond and was constant i mean we mentioned that he prayed uh, constantly that he quotes scripture, um, that he loves his men, that he looks out for his men, that he seeks a discipline of his men that leads to the betterment of the whole crew. Uh, he's not vindictive. You mentioned the scene where there were they went after the Americans or the British who were in the water potentially drowning. And there's the other scene where after they had destroyed a U-boat, this doesn't really give anything away, this is fairly early on, there were dead bodies of Germans and the Americans, other Americans on the destroyer were cheering. And then one of his mates looks and says, isn't this great? You know, we, we 50 just, less crowds, 50 less crowds. And he, he looks at him and says, yes, 50 souls. Yeah. And you could see the weight where he had this, look, this is my responsibility. I'm charged with defending my country with loving it. Uh, I am charged with defending these men and this this transport, this group of supplies that is moving across the Atlantic, but I do not take pleasure in taking someone's life. Well, so you bring that up, and you, you brought up one of the most interesting observations I thought the other day when we were talking about it, which was that 
one of the biggest points of conflict for Captain Krauss is when he doesn't honor and respect one of his men. So um, there's the head cook on on the boat and he loves Captain Krauss. You could tell that there is a mutual respect and admiration for each man towards the other and they both care about each other. And the cook is constantly trying to get him to eat because Captain Krauss is always on his feet and he probably gives him four or five meals that he doesn't eat. Um, he well eats a light breakfast, meals. beautiful, I and mean, they look delicious <laughs> in the movie. And it, well, there's an attack and the cook ends up dying. and the sadness and what you realize with Captain Krause is he was like in my, his efforts to preserve his crew and his men and to accomplish his mission, he accidentally, he, he inadvertently dishonored this one man who was seeking to do his job to serve him. And there's this weight and this sadness that I think Captain Krause has to live with. And I think that does a really good job of this almost inevitability of failure that will result from trying to do this right thing as part of the tragedy of being human is that even when we seek to do the right thing our best, our finitude pre prevents us from doing everything perfectly and fully as it ought to be done. You mentioned shepherd leaders and that's what he was and that's what we need. Uh, he's not a flashy um, you know, he doesn't yell. He doesn't bark commands. He's not on a power trip. He seeks to, he, he does what Tom Hanks does best. Like he plays this incredibly lovable. He played a similar role, uh, I think in like Bridge of Spies. Yeah. In a yeah. way, he played a very similar character in that. And that was an incredible movie as well. I, so I was talking to my dad on the phone earlier, but he was talking and, and talking about what do we, what do we live for? what do we choose to live for? And he mentioned that there was a Chuck Colson article uh, editorial put out like 30 years ago. And Chuck Colson was walking across college campus and there was a sign, a protest sign that says nothing is worth dying. for." And we talked about the self last week, some, and in a world where the self is central and all there is, then of course, nothing is worth dying for. But you look at someone like Captain Krauss, who was willing to sacrifice and die for something. Do we, do I live with a heart that views certain things as worth dying for? Mm. And that's not, the, that's not the cultural waters, societal waters we're swimming in, but it's certainly a much richer way to live. Yeah, we don't value duty as much as maybe that generation did. No, I was talking to a buddy several years ago. We went and saw a movie together. It was, it was another war movie. And afterwards, my buddy was talking to me. And he's like, what would make someone make a sacrifice like that? I, the answer that came to my head, at least, was, duty. I think that they're uh, not to put a sheen on past generations as if they were perfect, but I think the idea of duty was not trivialized like it is now, was not mocked like it is now. I think there was an understanding of the importance and value of living dutifully. So before, before we end on Greyhound, well, if you could give it some arbitrary rating, what would you give it? What's your, what's your arbitrary rating? Well, uh, all things considered, when I take in all the different pieces, when I look to judge a film, typically when I look at the artistic value, the scenic quality, cinematic quality, I would give it a four and a half out of five. Four, four and a half out of five. I give it two enthusiastic thumbs up. Excellent. I don't know out of how many. I see only two thumbs on you. So that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good score. That's very good. Good for them. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for listening to the Will and Rob Show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm at R.D. Hassler. You can follow Will at Stockdale Will. And we'll be back again very soon.